Take your Bibles and turn to Nehemiah. This is going to be the last time I'm going to say this. Nehemiah chapter 13. We'll uh, begin in verse 15 and read the last half of the last chapter. Nehemiah 15. In those days I saw in Judah people treading winepress on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Uh, Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut, and gave orders that they should not be opened until the Sabbath. And, and I stationed some of my servants at the gates, that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them, and I said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married uh, women of Ashad, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair and I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over Israel. Nevertheless, uh, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sambalat, the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign. And I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Lord, we thank you for uh, the blessing and the joy of being able to open your word in our own language and read it very clearly. God, we thank you for uh, each Sabbath day that we have to come 
and, and to worship you and to hear your word read, to hear your word preached. And we pray now that uh, this preaching of the word would be faithful uh, to what you have revealed to us in your word. Uh, but God, we pray more than that, that your word would speak to us through your Holy Spirit as he works in our hearts. God, we pray that you might do such a work of, of holiness and godliness in us to sanctify us and make us like our older brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh God, we praise and thank you that this is even possible, that you are a God so great to be, even be able to do such things. Thank you, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. So we come to the end of Nehemiah, and some of you have been with us the whole time, and, and you think, wow, it's been a long time. Ezra and Nehemiah, we've been preaching through those books. One book, originally, uh, talking about the people returning from exile, rebuilding the temple, all kinds of ups and downs, uh, people mourning because the temple was much smaller than the original temple. Uh, not only that, but you had the, the nations, the people around them, causing trouble for the people of Israel, uh, discouraging them, uh, threatening them, all kinds of things happening. Then there's also the struggle that people had with their own sin and wrestling, but God raised up faithful men like Ezra, leaders like Nehemiah to come and to rebuild the city and to take away the shame of God's people. Uh, to see God's people being renewed by the Word of God. Uh, it's just many things have happened. But we come to the end of Nehemiah now, and rather than the ending being sort of a calm, peaceful ending, sort of a happily ever after type of ending, uh, it's one full of conflict that needs to be resolved. A resolve that only the Gospel can bring to God's people. And even though the people of God have seen great works of salvation in their lives, as I said, uh, through these many different things of the temple and the wall and the revitalization of, of the, the community, there's been this reformation that's taken place, repentance, dedication, obedience to God's word, yet they find themselves in need of reformation again as they <coughs> struggle uh, and with their sin and they return to that sin not only their sin but the sin even of their fathers and as we come to this final chapter and I want you to hear this people I want you to hear this that the final chapter shows us that while the people of God are oftentimes weak God himself is strong and he remembers his people and he remembers his promises and that should bring us great comfort because we are a people in need of reform as well. Uh, people who struggle as the people did in Nehemiah's days. And so let's see how God's reforming grace continues to work in the lives of his people. And the first thing we come to in chapter um, 13, verse 15, is the Sabbath. This is the longest section, actually, of Nehemiah 13 um, that deals with the sacrilegious way that Israel dealt with the Sabbath day. In verse 16, we see that the Tyrians, these were people from Tyre, right? These were Gentiles, they weren't Jews. They brought in food and all kinds of goods to sell on the Sabbath. But if you look at the text, you'll see that they are not the ones who are identified as the ones profaning the, the Sabbath day. Instead, if you look at verse 17, 
uh, Nehemiah says that it was God's people who profaned his day. They knew better. They had God's law, God's word that commanded them what to do. And we read, then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing, this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? You know, this, it's interesting, I think, that how easy it is for us, even in our struggle with sin, to justify our sin. And maybe to discount it is not quite so bad. But I want you to notice, as we go through even this last half of this chapter of Nehemiah 13, how many times that Nehemiah refers to the sin of God's people as evil, as treacherous, as awful, as an abomination in the sight of God. Oh, that we would view our sin that way. Well, it wasn't right for the nations to come and to bring their wares to Jerusalem. And Nehemiah is going to address them in a little bit later. But the issue, I want you to understand, is not foreign invasion. It's not that God's people were helpless and the, the Gentile nations were imposing their godless ways upon God's people. Rather, it was an invasion of the heart that God's people's hearts were not in the right place. They were not seeking to obey the Lord. Look back at verse 15. You'll see that, that the Jews were working on the Sabbath day. They were treading wine presses. They were selling on the Sabbath day, bringing in heaps of grain and other things. And not only that, but they were forcing others to labor on the Sabbath. And we see that as it talks about how they loaded up their donkeys. You say, well, Pastor Rick, isn't that a stretch? You know, to say that they're making their donkeys work, so they're making other people work. But if you look at the fourth commandment, it includes giving your animals rest on that day. God cares for all of his creatures, and he recognizes that all needs that rest. Well, you know, it's interesting. You sort of think of these reforms that Nehemiah is bringing at the end of chapter 13. You sort of liken that to Jesus when he was in the temple and he drove out the money changers. And, stuff. and so there's sort of that parallel that can, that can run in your mind. But I think the thing that's interesting about the money changers is at least the money changers in the temple appeared to be doing God's work, right? You know, people were traveling from a far distance, and so it was very difficult for them to bring sacrifices so they could bring money instead, and they could buy uh, a, 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 an offering that they could then give to the Lord uh, from these money changers. And the money changers were ripping the people off, you know, in these transactions. So they really weren't doing the work of the Lord. But it appeared like they were doing the work of the Lord. But as we look at this Sabbath breaking, it's just outright secular con uh, consumerism on the Lord's day. There, there's no pretense that we're doing God's will. There's just a sense of this is what we want to do. And it's a sad portrait of the people of God. The people of God and, and the world had blended seamlessly into one profane act against God. You see both Jew and Gentile proclaiming the name of the Lord. And isn't that oftentimes the way it is? That the world leads the way and then the people of God are tempted to follow. Kids, you probably never have heard of this, but we used to have in our country blue laws. And stores actually were closed on Sunday and, and could not open until after church because they had to respect the fact that that was the Lord's Day. Now, it would have been better if they'd been closed completely like Chick-fil-A, but, you know, that's okay. 
you know, and I can remember Kmart, which was like, you know, the Walmart of that day, you know, they're just waiting to open their doors and stuff. And then it was interesting to see how the world began to push against that. And, and the world began to say, we're going to have sales and they're going to start on Sunday. And if you don't get here on Sunday, you're not going to get the things that are on sale because they're going to be sold out. Or the restaurants that said, we have our specials, but it's Sunday only. And they began to push and God's people just sort of followed after that. Even though uh, in our text today, God's people had made a covenant with God. They promised God that they would not break the Sabbath. Back in chapter 10, verse 31, they said, you know, even if they show up with their grain and all that stuff on the Sabbath, we won't buy from them on the Sabbath or any holy day. And yet here they are with full commerce. Now, you have to understand, this is not a new problem. This is something that God's people have struggled with for forever. Um, 300 years before this, Amos, the prophet, uh, spoke of the merchants chafing at the weekly shutdown. You know, they were just thinking about the business they were losing and how they just couldn't wait till the Sabbath was over with in Amos chapter 8, verse 5. Or 150 years earlier, Jeremiah, he spoke of, of how load after load of merchandise was being brought in and out of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And Jeremiah warning what would follow in Jeremiah 17, verses 19 through 27. Surely this was on Nehemiah's mind. And so you can see Nehemiah reacts strongly against this. Now what does he do? Well, look at verse 17. He does several things. First, he confronts the nobles who were responsible for uh, the city life. And, and he says to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing? Profaning the Sabbath day. Now, it says here that he confronts them. Now, that doesn't mean that he just merely rebukes them and says, you dirty, rotten sinners, how dare you profane the Sabbath day? That's not what he's doing. Actually, that word uh, con uh, confronts here means to strive with or to contend with. He was arguing his case with them, giving reasons and argumentation as to why these things were wrong. He wanted them to understand. And you'll, you'll notice throughout chapter 13 that Nehemiah, time after time and time again, confronts the people of God. He gives them argumentation and uh, warns them against the abuses uh, that would bring God's judgment upon his people. And so he, he warns them that it was for such abuses as this, as breaking the Sabbath day, that the judgment of God had come upon God's people years before. We see that in verse 18. And then after he confronts them and he he lays out that this is wrong. He takes immediate action to stop this sin that's being done against the Lord. He locks the gates on the Sabbath to stop Israel from continuing to sin. We see that in verse 19. And then he stations some of his own men to guard the gate to make sure that they don't come in. Now, kids, I want you to notice, if you look at verse 19, it said, as soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, then he did these things. Now you may wonder, why did he do this at nighttime? Well, what you have to understand is Jews don't mark the days the same way that we do. For us, a new day starts just after midnight, right? If you stayed up till 
last night, then you stayed up till Sunday because it was a new day at 12.01. But for them, it, it was very different. If you think back to Genesis chapter 1, when, when uh, there's the listing of the days, uh, then you sort of see the pattern of how the Jews thought of a day. Genesis 1, verse 5, God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And it goes on that same pattern. And there was evening and there was morning the second day, the third day, the fourth day, and so on and so forth. And so the evening time was the beginning time of their new day. So he said as, as soon as the Sabbath started, they would shut the gates. Or just before the Sabbath started, they would shut the gates and lock them to make sure that no one could come in. Now, this was rather radical if you think about it. Uh, for that day and time because you know when people uh, wanted to come well at nighttime people would come into the city because cities had walls and it was safe and so they would make their way into the city and and the and the the walls would keep them safe not everybody always made it in on time just maybe like sometimes we were not all on time for church there's times I've been late for church you know uh, but, you know, we're, we're all late to, to things. And, you know, so sometimes people would be shut out if the gates were shut just before the Sabbath. Or what about travelers who, who traveled at night? They would be uh, shut out of the city. And so there was a sense in which there was a great inconvenience. I mean, kids, can you imagine if you're traveling with your parents? Do you guys sometimes like maybe spend the night somewhere in a hotel or an Airbnb? And could you imagine if that hotel or that Airbnb said, you know, if you get here after dark, the doors are going to be locked. You can't stay in. And you, you're thinking right now, oh my, we stop lots of times after dark. You know, and, but that's what it was like for them. There was a sense in which there was, this would be a great inconvenience for others. But this was desperate measures that Nehemiah took to address the sins of Israel. As I referred to last week, Jesus' words when he spoke and how we ought to deal with sin. He goes, if your right hand causes you to sin, what? Cut it off. If your right foot causes you to sin, do what? Cut it off. Take drastic measures. And that's what you see here with Nehemiah in dressing this sin. Now, to some of us, we may think that this appears to be rather legalistic and maybe even unloving. But I think you have to understand... Nehemiah's zeal for the glory of God and for his holiness. You know, he looked to the Lord. And I think today, how often in the church today do we exalt people and their needs above the glory of God? That oftentimes when we sit and we talk about an issue, you know, maybe some decision, maybe when we're going to have the word, or what a worship service might look like or what a ministry might look like. Oftentimes we're looking at how the world would react to that or, or how people would perceive that. And we don't always start out by asking ourselves the vertical question of what does God think about this? Now, as far as like the time of our worship and things like that, he doesn't prescribe those things. But as far as the content of our worship, that's a totally different matter. That's not something that ought to be directed by how people feel about our worship service or how many people we can get to come in or how we can minister to people. But it ought to be first and foremost 
about who God is and what he requires. Well, the third thing that Nehemiah did was uh, when the merchants camped outside the gate, uh, hoping that they might either, I don't know why they did that exactly, whether it was to apply pressure on the Sabbath policy, maybe to get people to say, hey, we want them to come in, open the gates. I, I don't know if it was that or whether they were hoping, well, if we camp outside the gate, then when the gates do open, then we could be the first ones to get in. You know, just like a bunch of food trucks coming in to jockey for position to try to get the right spot to get the most uh, money. I don't know what it was. But Nehemiah threatens them with force of action if they don't leave in verses 20 and 21. And it says, and they didn't come back again. They didn't come back again on the Sabbath day. And then finally, Nehemiah instructed the Levites to purify themselves and then take over the task of guarding the city gates on the Sabbath. You know, he knew that he would not be there forever. He knew that his men would not be there forever. And this needed to be sustained. And so he took the Levites, who really, it was not their task to guard the city gates. It was really their task to guard the temple. And he takes them and he sanctifies them to show that this was a holy calling and purpose to guard the holy city on God's holy day of the Sabbath. And, and I think it is interesting that it uses that language of guarding. Because that, that, that word for guarding in the Bible uh, speaks oftentimes of God guarding that which is precious and holy in his sight. And, and that's what the Levites were doing. They were, were not just guarding city gates. They were guarding the people of God to see that they would do what God's will was. Think about the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were drove out of the garden. And what, what did God do? Boys, you'll appreciate this. Girls, you probably will too. He put a cherubim, an angel, with a flaming sword. Now, is that not cool? You know, God puts that in the garden to guard the tree of life, which was holy. And then likewise, God guards other things like the temple and the Sabbath day, as we see here in Nehemiah. And so we, we see that there is a, a zeal to obey the Lord on the Sabbath day. But the second thing we see is also uh, where Nehemiah purifies the people in verses 23 through 31. This is the final sin by the people, and it was one that, like the Sabbath day, was an old one. It's one that Israel had wrestled with for many years, and that was intermarrying with the other nations. I've said this every time I think I've preached on this, and I want you to get this. This is not a racial segregation. It's a spiritual segregation. It is, uh, it is a sense in which God's people are to marry in the faith. That that household may be like-minded and of one heart to worship and to follow the Lord. And yet the people have intermarried again. Again. This has happened so many times. Even earlier on in the book of Ezra, we read how that happened. But here in verse 30, uh, 23, excuse me, uh, we read, In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Even though in chapter 10, verse 30, they had covenanted with God, saying, God, let us be cursed if we don't keep this covenant, that we will not marry foreign wives. We will not intermarry. And yet here they are, just years later, uh, sinning in this way. 
And, and, and as if you look at the text, as a result of these spiritually mixed marriages, their children did not learn Hebrew. Look at uh, verses 23 and 24. They didn't learn the language of the Word of God. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. And they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. They weren't taught the language that the Word of God was in. And so God's people were not careful to teach their children the Word of God, which meant then that they would not have godly offspring. They would be more likely to have children that would disobey the Lord because they didn't know His Word, much like the Jews in the times of Judges. Judges, a very dark period in, in the life of Israel, a lot like the Civil War was for our country where it was a very difficult and a dark time. And same thing for the judges. But in Judges chapter 2, verse 10, we read, And all the generations also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? That God's people are in the land and they knew nothing of the feeding of the, of the people with quail or with manna or the crossing of the Red Sea or, or the plagues of Pharaoh. They knew nothing of those things because they had not been taught. It's, it's, it's really, uh, well, let me just say this. As goes the heart of our children, so goes the future of the church. And here the children cannot speak the language of the world excuse me, of the Word of God, but only the language of the world. And it's interesting, if you think about it, the sort of the cycle that happens in so many churches. You take a church that's very liberal, and oftentimes God is faithful to raise up a remnant. Not always, but oftentimes. He'll raise up a remnant of people who will begin reading the Word of God, and they'll have that conviction, and they'll fight against that liberalism. And, and they will take a stand. And... You know, they may start a new church. There may be a revival in that church. It takes different forms. But they take that stand uh, because it's important to obey the Word of God. And, and then uh, the, their children experience the blessings of what that means to, to be raised by parents who so valued the Word of God and loved God with all their heart. And they, they love the Lord. But... If they are not taught, and oftentimes they're not taught why they believe what they believe, they just, they just experience the worship, they experience the ministry, they experience the Christian community that they're raised in, but they don't understand why, then they oftentimes, in just one generation, will return to become that liberal church. And just one generation, a single generation's compromise, can undo the work of centuries. And so instead of the children being a light to the nation, they had become like the nations because their parents did not teach them the word of God. Well, this problem of intermarriage was not only a problem of the people, but also of the priests. Look at verse 28. And Nehemiah explains that a grandson of Eliashib, the high priest, had married a daughter of Sambalat, the Hornite. Now, Eliashib, if you remember last week, he was the guy that allowed Tobiah to move into the temple. 
and to take out the sacrifices and stuff out of the storerooms and let Tobiah, one of the unholy trinity, right, one of the three men that strongly opposed the rebuilding of the wall and, and opposed Nehemiah and even sought to kill him, allowed him to move into the temple of the living God. And now his grandson has married the daughter of Sambalat, the sort of the ringleader of the unholy trinity. Uh, even though the Lord said to Moses in Leviticus 21, 13, uh, speaking about the priest, he says, and he shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow or a divorced woman or a woman who has been defiled or a prostitute, these he shall not marry. But he, a priest, shall take as his wife a virgin of his own people, that he may not profane his offspring among his people. For I am the Lord who sanctifies him. You see, a priest was to be a godly example before the people of having godly offspring. But that wasn't the case with Eliashib's family. There was this intermarrying that took place. Well, what did Nehemiah do? Nehemiah did what Nehemiah always does. He takes action. You know, he, he stands against that sin. It, in the case of Eliashib's grandson in verse 28, what's he do? He ran him out of town. He's, Let's get rid of this guy. He's, he's uh, profaning the office of priest. And so he runs him out of town. Regarding the people, if you look in verse 25, Nehemiah does what he always does. And I confronted them, right? I confronted them. He explained to them what it was that, that they had done wrong. And, and he even reflects on, on King Solomon, a man chosen by God and loved by God. Look at verse 26. Among the many nations, there was no king like him. And he was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all of Israel. And yet, he was a man who had a mighty fall. Kids like Humpty Dumpty, I guess, right? <laughs> he fell off the wall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty back together again. You know, it was a lot the same way with King Solomon. Uh, because it says in verse, at the end of verse 26 that nevertheless foreign women made him uh, or even him to sin. You see, here is the greatest king in Israel, but he couldn't keep his eyes off the women, off the ladies. And they became his weak spot and God's judgment fell upon him. And if King Solomon was not above the, the just judgment of God. Who are we to think that we can play with sin like you would play with a teddy bear and not get stung? If King Solomon could not get away with it, then, then Nehemiah argues with the people, then how can you expect to get away with this? And Nehemiah, speaking at the end of verse 26, said, Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? Nehemiah, just like Jesus in the New Testament, takes a firm stance against the sin of God's people. Holiness was a priority for Nehemiah. Holiness um, was a priority for Nehemiah because it was a priority for God. And as I said earlier, I think the church has forgotten this. And our focus is so much more about outreach and drawing people in and, you know, trying to uh, have a good face in a culture that's beginning to turn against the church, that we've forgotten the holiness of God. 
We forgot that really our audience is one, and that is the Lord God to please Him. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And out of that desire to please Him, then comes how we are to act towards other people. Now, verse 25, I will admit, brothers and sisters, is sort of challenging verse. Because Nehemiah responds to the people with cursing, physical pain, and shame, pulling out their hair and stuff. Um, and and that's, a, that's a difficult verse. I mean, Nehemiah's response, I think we have to understand, wasn't just an angry man's reaction. He, he, and this is what commentators will say. They said, oftentimes, it could be that he was acting as governor. There, there was punishments that were necessary and required because of the acts of the people of God. And he was willing to go to the extreme that was necessary uh, to carry out the just punishment. Or the other thing that uh, commentators commented on was uh, that he was acting as God's divine sanctions of a curse for the people of God. That the people of God had sworn to God a covenant saying, if we do not keep these things, let us be cursed. And that Nehemiah was carrying out that curse before the people. I don't know, you know, his, to us, his actions might seem very extreme. Uh, and, and unwarranted. But I do think that what you see in this, if nothing else, is you see a zeal for the holiness of God. That we are to take sin seriously. And then Nehemiah prays in verse 29, Remember them, O Lord my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood of the Levites. And likewise, and he prays again in verse, the end of verse 31, Remember me, O my God, for good. It's almost like Nehemiah knows that for upholding the word of God regarding the Sabbath and godly marriages and godly parenting and the purity of the priesthood and Levitical service, that he will take some flack. And so he prays to the Lord. He prays for God not only to, to guard him, but also to work in the hearts of the people. And so he prays that God would not only remember his enemies, but that he would also remember him as well. And then he says at the end of verse uh, the verses 30 and 31, he goes, Thus I cleanse, this is sort of a summary of the book. Thus I have cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priest and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering and appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Now, one of the things I want us to see as we come away from the book of Nehemiah is that God, as we think about being reformed and yet how God is constantly reforming his church that God often raises up godly leaders for times of reformation in the church uh, turn with me if you would to the New Testament to Ephesians chapter 4 Ephesians chapter 4 uh, beginning in verse 10 you know verse 10 is speaking about how Christ has been exalted he's been he, uh, he was he descended into the earth and now he ascends into heaven. And as he does as the victorious king, you know, much like a, a king who would take captives in the Old Testament, uh, he gives gifts. And Christ gives gifts to his church. And that's where we pick it up in Ephesians 4.10. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers. 
what, what he's saying here is that I've given spiritual gifts to the church. And when we think of spiritual gifts, you know, we think in terms of, you know, tongues or, you know, some of the more showy gifts and stuff, you know. And yes, there are gifts of the Spirit in that sense, like First Corinthians uh, speaks about. But he also gives offices to the church. Men who help in terms of the reformation and the building up of the church. Listen to the description. As he says, he gave apostles and prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so there is a sense, brothers and sisters, which we ought to give thanks to God for the men that He has raised up in the church to serve. Those faithful elders who uh, tirelessly labor on your behalf uh, to minister to you, to encourage you, to oversee you, to pray for you, uh, to, to do all that they can to see you grow in the faith. There's many hours that they spend away from their family or trying to juggle the work and family and church and all these things. And they do that because they love Christ and therefore they love you and they want to see you grow. But, like Ezra and Nehemiah, they can do all the reforming that they want, but the minute that that good, faithful leader leaves the church, maybe the Lord takes him home to glory, and he's no longer there, and the next generation comes, and they are not the faithful shepherds. They are not the ones who care and love. Um, it's, it, it is oftentimes in those times that God's people turn away. And so while God may use faithful men to bring about reform in the church, they are not ones that can bring lasting reform. God, uh, Their efforts and reforms will be nothing if God does not do the work of reformation in the hearts of His people. And that's why this book cries out for the coming Messiah who will complete this work of reformation. You see, these people, they needed Christ to come. We needed Christ to come. And be obedient to God's covenant, even to the point of dying, to pay for our covenant unfaithfulness towards God, to pay for our sins, our transgressions, and to give us His righteousness that we might be covenant keepers. You see, what God's people need are more than just laws or rules. We need to change heart, a Jeremiah 31 type of heart. And so Nehemiah as we come to the end with the people still in a mess, is really pointing us to Christ. Because what the people need is an alien righteousness. A righteousness that is given to them from outside of themselves. And what they need is the indwelling Holy Spirit. A life-giving Spirit. One who will lead them in the way of righteousness that conforms them to the image of the Son of God, uh, teaching them to die to sin and live unto righteousness. 
not some boogeyman type of spirit, but a, the third person, person of the triune God who dwells in us, who has the mind of God. What we need is to be guarded because we are holy because he who indwells us is holy. And as you struggle with your sin, I want to ask you this morning, where is your hope? Where is your hope? What do you look for for lasting change in your life? Or, or, or let me just give you the answer. Who do you look for for lasting change in your life? Such change only comes through Jesus Christ. Paul says in Philippians 4, 7, And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And this is what helps us to say no to, uh, if you think about sin, as the shiny fishing lure. You know, if you've ever gone fishing and you throw that lure out in front of a bass and you just run it past his face enough times, he's going to strike it at some point in time. And that's what happens with us. That's what allows us to know. It is God who will continue to do a work of reformation in his church. But if you don't know him, you can strive all you want to make improvements in your life and to change your life. You can get your life more organized. You can live more healthy. You can do all you can do to live a life of satisfaction, a life of joy. But let me just tell you here today, it will be of no avail. As, as my uncle used to say, it'd be like putting lipstick on a pig. You know? It just doesn't really change much. Because our problem is not the external part of us. And that's all these things deal with. It's just our habits and our external life. The problem is our heart. It's the inner part of us. The part that thinks. The part that desires. The part that wills to do things. And as long as your life is controlled by sin and rebellion against God, you'll have no true lasting peace. You, you might find happiness here and there from time to time, but no lasting peace. But Jesus can give you a new heart where sin and selfishness is no longer the default, but rather a heart where you desire to please God. A life where you can have a relationship once again with the God who created you. If you don't know him, I would love to talk to you after the service and share with you more. Let's pray. the people that we're reading about in Nehemiah 13. We are the people that make promises to you uh, and yet in the next breath break those promises. We are people, God, who uh, justify sin and, and seek to make it uh, more palatable rather than seeing it as treacherous and evil and a profaning of your name. Oh Lord, please forgive us for our sin. But we thank you, God, for the, the righteous men, the, the godly men that, that you raise up to lead the church. And they're not perfect, 
But we're so thankful, Lord, for them. And I just want to praise you, Lord, for the men that you have, uh, that you have raised up to oversee Kirk of the Plains. Thank you, Lord, for their faithful service. But Lord, we know that it's only you that can change us. So Lord, please continue to cause us to grow. Cause us to look to you in those times of, of discouragement, in the midst of trials, in those times of temptation as we face the shiny fishing lure that, that comes across our eyes and our mouth that we're tempted to, to grab onto. Oh God, may you change us, change us, change us. And Lord, we pray for those that do not know you, that they might come to faith in you as well. Lord, we thank you and pray these things in your name. Amen.